Chapter Twenty Three of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Three. Nay, if the gentle spirit of moving words can no way change you to a milder form, I'll woo you like a soldier at arm's end, and love you against the nature of love, force you. Two Gentlemen of Verona The apartment to which the Lady Rowena had been introduced was fitted up with some rude attempts at ornament and magnificence, and her being placed there might be considered as a peculiar mark of respect not offered to the other prisoners. But the wife of Front de Boeuf, for whom it had been originally furnished, was long dead, and decay and neglect had impaired the few ornaments with which her taste had adorned it. The tapestry hung down from the walls in many places, and in others was tarnished and faded under the effects of the sun, or tattered and decayed by age. Desolate, however, as it was, this was the apartment of the castle which had been judged most fitting for the accommodation of the Saxon heiress, and here she was left to meditate upon her fate, until the actors in this nefarious drama had arranged the several parts which each of them was to perform. This had been settled in a council, held by Front de Boeuf, de Brassy, and the Templar, in which, after a long and warm debate concerning the several advantages which each insisted upon deriving from his peculiar share in this audacious enterprise, they had at length determined the fate of their unhappy prisoners. It was about the hour of noon, therefore, when de Brassy, for whose advantage the expedition had been first planned, appeared to prosecute his views upon the hand and possessions of the Lady Rowena. The interval had not entirely been bestowed in holding counsel with his confederates, for de Brassy had found leisure to decorate his person with all the foppery of the times. His green cassock and vizard were now flung aside. His long luxuriant hair was trained to flow in quaint tresses down his richly furred cloak. His beard was closely shaved, his doublet reached to the middle of his leg, and the girdle which secured it, and at the same time supported his ponderous sword, was embroidered and embossed with gold work. We have already noticed the extravagant fashion of the shoes at this period, and the points of Maurice de Brassis might have challenged the prize of extravagance with the gayest, being turned up and twisted like the horns of a ram. Such was the dress of a gallant of the period, and in the present instance that effect was aided by the handsome person and good demeanour of the wearer, whose manners partook alike of the grace of a courtier and the frankness of a soldier. He saluted Rowena by doffing his velvet bonnet, garnished with a golden brooch, representing St. Michael trampling down the Prince of Evil. With this he gently motioned the lady to a seat, and, as she still retained her standing posture, the knight ungloved his right hand, and motioned to conduct her thither. But Rowena declined, by her gesture, the proffered compliment, and replied, If I be in the presence of my jailer, sir knight, nor will circumstances allow me to think otherwise, 
it best becomes his prisoner to remain standing till she learns her doom. Alas, fair Owena, returned de Brassy, you are in presence of your captive, not your jailer, and it is from your fair eyes that de Brassy must receive that doom which you fondly expect from him. I know you not, sir, said the lady, drawing herself up with all the pride of offended rank and beauty. I know you not, and the insolent familiarity with which you apply to me the jargon of a troubadour forms no apology for the violence of a robber. To thyself, fair maid, answered de Brassy in his former tone, to thine own charms be ascribed whate'er I have done which passed the respect due to her whom I have chosen queen of my heart and lodestar of my eyes. I repeat to you, sir knight, that I know you not, and that no man wearing chain and spurs ought to intrude himself upon the presence of an unprotected lady. That I am unknown to you, said de Brassy, is indeed my misfortune. Yet let me hope that de Brassy's name has not been always unspoken when minstrels or heralds have praised deeds of chivalry, whether in the lists or in the battlefield. To heralds and to minstrels, then, leave thy praise, sir knight, replied Rowena more suiting for their mouths than for thine own, and tell me which of them shall record in a song or in a book of tourney the memorable quest of this knight, a conquest obtained over an old man, followed by a few timid hinds, and its booty an unfortunate maiden transported against her will to the castle of a robber? "'You are unjust, Lady Rowena,' said the knight, biting his lips in some confusion." and speaking in a tone more natural to him than that of affected gallantry which he had at first adopted. Yourself free from passion, you can allow no excuse for the frenzy of another, although caused by your own beauty. I pray you, sir knight, said Rowena, to seize a language so commonly used by strolling minstrels that it becomes not the mouth of knights or nobles. Certes, you constrain me to sit down, since you enter upon such commonplace terms, of which each vile crowder hath a stock that might last from hence to Christmas. Proud damsel, said de Brassy, incensed at finding his gallant style procured him nothing but contempt. Proud damsel, thou shalt be as proudly encountered. Know then that I have supported my pretensions to your hand in the way that best suited thy character. It is meeter for thy humour to be wooed with bow and bill than in set terms and in courtly language. Courtesy of tongue, said Rowena, when it is used to veil churlishness of deed, is but a knight's girdle around the breast of a base clown. I wonder not that the restraint appears to gall you. More it were for your honour to have retained the dress and language of an outlaw than to veil the deeds of one under an affection of gentle language and demeanour. "'You counsel well, lady,' said the Norman. "'And in the bold language which best justifies bold action, "'I tell thee, thou shalt never leave this castle, "'or thou shalt leave it as Maurice de Brassy's wife. "'I am not one to be baffled in my enterprises, "'nor needs a Norman noble scrupulously to vindicate his conduct "'to the Saxon maiden whom he distinguishes by the offer of his hand. "'Thou art proud, Rowena,' and thou art the fitter to be my wife. By what other means couldst thou be raised to high honour and to princely place, 
saving by my alliance. How else wouldst thou escape from the mean precincts of a country grange, where Saxons herd with the swine which form their wealth, to take thy seat, honoured as thou shouldst be, and shalt be, amid all in England that is distinguished by beauty or dignified by power? Sir Knight, replied Rowena, the grange which you contemn hath been my shelter from infancy, and trust me, when I leave it, should that day ever arrive, it shall be with one who has not learned to despise the dwelling and manners in which I have been brought up. I guess your meaning, lady, said de Brassy, though you may think it lies too obscure for my apprehension. But dream not that Richard Coeur de Lyon will ever resume his throne, far less that Wilfred of Ivanhoe, his minion, will ever lead thee to his footstool, to be there welcomed as the bride of a favourite. Another suitor might feel jealousy while he touched this string, but my firm purpose cannot be changed by a passion so childish and so hopeless. Know, lady, that this rival is in my power, and that it rests but with me to betray the secret of his being within the castle to Front de Boeuf, whose jealousy will be more fatal than mine. Wilfrid, here, said Rowena in disdain, that is as true as that Front de Boeuf is his rival. De Brassy looked at her steadily for an instant. Wert thou really ignorant of this? said he. Didst thou not know that Wilfred of Ivanhoe travelled in the litter of the Jew? A meet conveyance for the crusader, whose doughty arm was to reconquer the holy sepulchre. And he laughed scornfully. And if he is here, said Rowena, compelling herself to a tone of indifference, though trembling with an agony of apprehension which she could not suppress. In what is he the rival of Front de Boeuf? Or what has he to fear beyond a short imprisonment and an honourable ransom, according to the use of chivalry? Rowena, said de Brassy, art thou too deceived by the common error of thy sex, who think there can be no rivalry but that respecting their own charms? Knowest thou not there is a jealousy of ambition and of wealth, as well as of love, and that this our host, Front de Boeuf, will push from his road him who opposes his claim to the fair barony of Ivanhoe, as readily, eagerly, and unscrupulously, as if he were preferred to him by some blue-eyed damsel? But smile on my suit, lady, and the wounded champion shall have nothing to fear from Front de Boeuf, whom else thou mayst mourn for, as in the hands of one who has never shown compassion. Save him, for the love of heaven, said Rowena, her firmness giving way under terror for her lover's impending fate. I can, I will, it is my purpose, said de Brassy. For when Rowena consents to be the bride of de Brassy, who is it shall dare to put forth a violent hand upon her kinsman, the son of her guardian, the companion of her youth? but it is thy love must buy his protection. I am not romantic fool enough to further the fortune or avert the fate of one who is likely to be a successful obstacle between me and my wishes. Use thine influence with me in this behalf, and he is safe. Refuse to employ it, Wilfred dies, and thou thyself art not the nearer to freedom. Thy language, answered Rowena, hath in its indifferent bluntness something which cannot be reconciled with the horrors it seems to express. I believe not that thy purpose is so wicked, 
or thy power so great. Flatter thyself, then, with that belief, said de Brassy, until time shall prove it false. Thy lover lies wounded in this castle, thy preferred lover. He is a bar betwixt Front de Boeuf and that which Front de Boeuf loves better than either ambition or beauty. What will it cost beyond the blow of a poniard, or the thrust of a javelin, to silence his opposition for ever? Nay, were Front de Boeuf afraid to justify a deed so open, let the leech but give his patient a wrong draught, let the chamberlain or the nurse who tends him but pluck the pillow from his head, and Wilfrid, in his present condition, is sped without the effusion of blood. Cedric also, and Cedric also, said Rowena, repeating his words, my noble, my generous guardian, I deserved the evil I have encountered, for forgetting his fate even in that of his son. Cedric's fate also depends on thy determination, said de Brassy, and I leave thee to form it. Hitherto Rowena had sustained her part in this trying scene with undismayed courage, but it was because she had not considered the danger as serious and imminent. Her disposition was naturally that which physiognomists consider as proper to fair complexions, mild, timid, and gentle, but it had been tempered, and as it were hardened by the circumstances of her education. Accustomed to see the will of all, even of Cedric himself, sufficiently arbitrary with others, give way before her wishes, she had acquired that sort of courage and self-confidence which arises from the habitual and constant deference of the circle in which we move. She could scarce conceive the possibility of her will being opposed, far less that of its being treated with total disregard. Her haughtiness and habit of domination was therefore a fictitious character, induced over that which was natural to her, and it deserted her when her eyes were opened to the extent of her own danger, as well as that of her lover and her guardian, and when she found her will, the slightest expression of which was one to command respect and attention, now placed in opposition to that of a man of a strong, fierce, and determined mind, who possessed the advantage over her, and was resolved to use it, she quailed before him. After casting her eyes around, as if to look for the aid which was nowhere to be found, and after a few broken interjections, she raised her hands to heaven, and burst into a passion of uncontrolled vexation and sorrow. It was impossible to see so beautiful a creature in such extremity without feeling for her, and de Brassy was not unmoved, though he was yet more embarrassed than touched. He had in truth gone too far to recede, and yet, in Rowena's present condition, she could not be acted on either by argument or threats. He paced the apartment to and fro, now vainly exhorting the terrified maiden to compose herself, now hesitating concerning his own line of conduct. If, thought he, I should be moved by the tears and sorrow of this disconsolate damsel, what should I reap but the loss of those fair hopes for which I have encountered so much risk, and the ridicule of Prince John and his jovial comrades? And yet, he said to himself, I feel myself ill-framed for the part which I am playing. I cannot look on so fair a face while it is disturbed with agony, or on those eyes when they are drowned in tears. 
by which she had retained her original haughtiness of disposition, or that I had a larger share of Front de Boeuf's thrice-tempered hardness of heart. Agitated by these thoughts, he could only bid the unfortunate Rowena be comforted, and assure her that as yet she had no reason for the excess of despair to which she was now giving way. But in this task of consolation, de Brassy was interrupted by the horn, horse-winded blowing far and keen, which had at the same time alarmed the other inmates of the castle, and interrupted their several plans of avarice and of license. Of them all, perhaps, de Brassy least regretted the interruption, for his conference with the Lady Rowena had arrived at a point where he found it equally difficult to prosecute or to resign his enterprise. And here we cannot but think it necessary to offer some better proof than the incidents of an idle tale to vindicate the melancholy representation of manners which has been just laid before the reader. It is grievous to think that those valiant barons, to whose stand against the crown the liberties of England were indebted for their existence, should themselves have been such dreadful oppressors, and capable of excesses contrary not only to the laws of England, but to those of nature and humanity. But, alas, we have only to extract from the industrious Henry one of these numerous passages which he has collected from contemporary historians, to prove that fiction itself can hardly reach the dark reality of the horrors of the period. The description given by the author of the Saxon Chronicle of the cruelties exercised in the reign of King Stephen by the great barons and lords of castles, who were all Normans, affords a strong proof of the excesses of which they were capable when their passions were inflamed. They grievously oppressed the poor people by building castles, and when they were built they filled them with wicked men, or rather devils, who seized both men and women who they imagined had any money, threw them into prison, and put them to more cruel tortures than the martyrs ever endured. They suffocated some in mud, and suspended others by the feet, or the head, or the thumbs, kindling fire below them. They squeezed the heads of some with knotted cords, till they pierced their brains, while they threw others into dungeons swarming with serpents, snakes, and toads. But it would be cruel to put the reader to the pain of perusing the remainder of this description. As another instance of these bitter fruits of conquest, and perhaps the strongest that can be quoted, we may mention that the Empress Matilda, though a daughter of the King of Scotland, and afterwards both Queen of England and Empress of Germany, the daughter, the wife, and the mother of monarchs, was obliged during her early residence for education in England to assume the veil of a nun as the only means of escaping the licentious pursuit of the Norman nobles. This excuse she stated before a great council of clergy of England as the sole reason for her having taken the religious habit. The assembled clergy admitted the validity of the plea and the notoriety of the circumstances upon which it was founded, giving thus an indubitable and most remarkable testimony to the existence of that disgraceful license by which that age was stained. It was a matter of public knowledge, they said, that after the conquest of King William, his Norman followers, elated by so great a victory, 
acknowledged no law but their own wicked pleasure, and not only despoiled the conquered Saxons of their lands and their goods, but invaded the honour of their wives and of their daughters with a most unbridled license. And hence it was then common for matrons and maidens of noble families to assume the veil and take shelter in convents, not as called thither by the vocation of God, but solely to preserve their honour from the unbridled wickedness of man. Such and so licentious were the times, as announced by the public declaration of the assembled clergy, recorded by Idma, and we need add nothing more to vindicate the probability of the scenes which we have detailed, and are about to detail, upon the more apocryphal authority of the warder M.S. End of chapter 23